Hello, I'm Dr. Aaron Donaghy and I teach international history at the School of History and Archives in University College Dublin. Today I'm discussing British policy in the Falklands dispute during the 1970s. The story of the Falklands War has been told many times, but less well known are its immediate origins. Far from being a quiet backdrop, the mid to late 70s marked the most dangerous period for Britain prior to the war. The Argentine occupation of Southern Thule, withdrawal of ambassadors, attacks on ships and secret deployments tell only part of the story. I argue that, through a combination of preventative diplomacy and robust defence planning, the Labour government succeeded in maintaining peace, avoiding the fate of its Tory successors. At the same time, I explain why a settlement was never achieved. I argue that, while British diplomacy fared well in containing Argentine hostility, numerous factors combined to constrain policy-making. This resulted in a strategy geared towards managing, rather than resolving, the sovereignty issue. The Falklands in the 70s were a colonial anomaly. 300 miles from Argentina and 8,000 from Britain, there were less than 2,000 people but more than 600,000 sheep. A steady rate of emigration was compounded by a demographic imbalance, with men outnumbering women by 3 to 1. This produced worrying social trends. Incest and adultery were rife, and the divorce rate was high, more than one marriage in four. The wool-based economy was declining, while it was believed that oil in the region could only be exploited in tandem with Argentina. Communications were primitive. There was no international airport, and no roads outside of the capital, Stanley. Secondary education ran to only age 15, while islanders wishing to leave the Falklands by air relied on exit visas issued by Argentina. The social structure was feudalistic. The Falkland Islands Company owned half the land and controlled most of the banking, commerce and shipping. Dependency on government landowners and an absence of local investment resulted in a lack of confidence and enterprise at community level that bordered on apathy. Entertainment was confined to pubs, and visiting journalists usually returned with tales of drunkenness. The ideal of Britishness gradually waned throughout the Commonwealth. Aftershocks from the withdrawal east of Suez, coupled with Britain's decision to seek EEC membership, ushered in a sense of national consciousness and self-reliance in places such as Australia. But the Falklands never experienced this epiphany. Here the paradigm was subverted. The absence of a tangible culture or identity partly explains this peculiarity too small and remote for independence and resolving to steer clear of Argentina, islanders held a complete dependence on the motherland for survival. The distinction between Britishness in the UK and the Falklands became more apparent. Visiting ministers were greeted with exaggerated, extravagant displays of patriotism. Reporting from the islands in 1976, a Times correspondent noted, It is difficult to believe you are on the other side of the world from London. There is no doubt that islanders are more British than Britain. Without the influence of television, newspapers, magazines and advertising, the modern world has passed them by. Sheltered from the tinnitus emerging from Fleet Street and with the community of Anglo-Saxon stock, islanders retained traditional values absent in other parts of the empire. The loyal, white, British qualities that islanders stressed to Westminster explain why colonies like the Falklands and Gibraltar did not go the way of Diego Garcia. British claims the Falklands were largely based on a long, uninterrupted occupation. The islands were in economic decline, and their remoteness made them virtually indefensible. Moreover, the reorientation of foreign and defence policies, triggered by the financial crisis of the late 60s, meant that Britain could no longer afford to support its remaining outposts. The large anti-colonial bloc at the UN, meanwhile, left Britain completely isolated in the dispute, even among Commonwealth nations. In this sense, we can better understand British efforts to transfer sovereignty to Argentina. After the merger of the Foreign and Commonwealth Offices in 1968, responsibility for the Falklands was passed to the Latin American Department. This was significant. 
administration of the islands was now being conducted in isolation from other colonies. The islanders' future was entrusted with officials anxious to improve British-Latin American relations. As a traditional actor in shaping British policy towards the continent, the Latin American department represented the broad establishment view, reflecting the interests of banks, businesses, government and services. Increasingly, the islanders' well-being was subordinated to the wider need for political and trade relations with Latin America. Foreign office diplomats therefore pushed ministers to make concessions to resolve the dispute. By the 1970s, the islands had become a burden that had to be disposed of, so that British-Latin American relations could be sustained. The dispute centred on a tripartite dilemma. Argentina wanted sovereignty over the Falklands. The islanders wanted fiercely to remain part of Britain. The British government wanted rid of the islands, which had become an embarrassing and expensive post-colonial problem. Britain's task was a dual one. Firstly, to find a way of resolving the sovereignty issue with Argentina. Secondly, and most importantly, was the need to maintain peace and keep Argentina away from military action. Let's now consider these two key issues. I argue that British failure to achieve a settlement was the result of numerous political factors which combined to severely limit ministers' room for manoeuvre. This resulted in policies which were geared towards containing rather than resolving the sovereignty issue. The primary difficulty facing the government was the de facto veto exercised by the islanders. This was a legacy of 1968, when Britain secretly reached agreement with Argentina over a sovereignty transfer. When news of a possible sellout was leaked, the uproar in Parliament which ensued forced a U-turn in British policy. Successive governments became bound by the plebiscite pledge, which made islanders' wishes paramount. British diplomacy during the 70s was therefore always guided by parliamentary and public opinion. A second constraining factor was the formation of an influential Falklands lobby. This small but powerful body was activated in response to fears that Britain was preparing to ditch the islanders' right to self-determination by transferring sovereignty to Argentina. Its heartbeat was the Falkland Islands Committee, a London-based ginger group which comprised an alliance of individuals, commercial interests and islanders. Most importantly, it included MPs from all three major UK parties. This in turn meant that the lobby was well represented within the British Parliament, which ultimately retained the final say on sovereignty. The committee's raison d'etre was to raise awareness among Parliament, the public and the media. During Labour's years in power, the Falklands lobby would play a major role in stifling British attempts to forge closer Islander-Argentine relations. Over time, it would become one of the most influential lobbies in modern British politics. One example of its influence was in 1974, when Britain and Argentina began talks on a condominium of the islands. When news of these talks had leaked, the Falklands lobby mobilised wide support from the political establishment to derail the initiative. The Keep the Falklands British campaign was reactivated by the Falkland Isles Committee. It hosted a reception in London, attended by 50 MPs, 10 members of the House of Lords, 20 media reporters and other parties. Earl Mountbatten of Burma was a special guest, demonstrating that the lobby was cementing relations with the member of the royal family and reflecting domestic approval of the campaign. Lobbyists tended to matters on the Falklands too. Radio and television programmes were broadcast and leaflets were distributed to every household, removing any chance of islanders supporting a condominium. Witnessing the loud discord in Parliament and Stanley, Foreign Secretary Jim Callaghan was forced to end the Anglo-Argentine talks. Leave this poison chalice alone, he warned his fellow ministers. There were other factors which made British efforts to reach a settlement more difficult. One was the friction between the bureaucratic culture of foreign office diplomats and that of senior ministers when it came to deciding on policy. As explained, the Foreign Office emphasised the wider national interest, 
prioritizing relations with Latin America above the islanders. But the interests of these civil servants clashed with the responsibilities of ministers, who, as the decision-makers, were guided by domestic constraints, obligations to Parliament, and the primacy of public opinion. Whereas diplomats presented Falkland's papers with references to international law, trade, and the UN, ministers tended to argue from principles, self-determination, sovereignty, Parliament, and public opinion. On occasion, Argentine pressure spurred diplomats to push for their favoured formula, a leaseback of the islands. Yet this was always overruled by foreign secretaries and cabinet ministers, wary of the lethal price to be paid for selling out a British population against its wishes. They were anxious to avoid parliamentary and public uproar, sensitive about self-determination, at a time when the Ulster question and devolution debates in Scotland and Wales were taking place. Instead of leaseback, foreign secretaries sought a middle ground between the islanders and Argentina as a way of circumventing the problem. Compromises such as economic and scientific cooperation were offered, as was joint sovereignty over the Falklands' uninhabited dependencies, but none of these proved acceptable to Argentina. Finally, British efforts to resolve the dispute were complicated by the chaos in Argentina and militancy of the armed forces. Throughout the 70s, Argentina was plagued by political instability, hyperinflation and terrorist problems. This hindered the task of convincing islanders that prosperity rested on closer ties with Argentina rather than dependence on Britain. A military coup in 1976 and its aftermath would make a settlement even more difficult. The Argentine junta embarked upon systematic human rights violations based on a policy of disappearances rather than arrests. Human rights groups cite figures of 30,000 cases. Heart-rending tales of suffering and heroism were symbolised by the daily marches of mothers around the Plaza de Mayo, displaying the names and pictures of their missing children. For a Labour government placing much stock on justice and human rights, a transfer of the islands to such a regime was nigh impossible. Such was the sensitivity over human rights among the Labour Party, Parliament and the public that British reluctance to negotiate became more apparent. No talks this summer, just football, warned Foreign Secretary David Owen in 1978, as the World Cup in Argentina began. Britain would play out time during Labour's final year in office, but without making progress towards resolving the dispute. The poison chalice had been left alone. Far more resounding was the Labour government's success in keeping the peace. Military planning posed major difficulties. By the early 70s, Britain could no longer afford to contribute to the defence of Western Europe and maintain an active presence in the Gulf, Far East and elsewhere. Inevitably, British governments devoted defence priorities to the European Theatre and NATO alliance, at the expense of peripheral overseas territories. The remoteness of the islands and lack of facilities meant that British policymakers were always negotiating from a position of weakness. Meanwhile, the Argentine experience in the 70s was blighted by instability, terrorism and the militancy of the armed forces. Threats of invasion therefore waxed and waned according to domestic circumstances. While Britain kept Argentina in negotiations through preventative diplomacy, conflict had also been avoided as a result of prudent defence planning. This rested on two key decisions. The first was the success of foreign secretaries in convincing the Ministry of Defence to retain HMS endurance. Britain's South Atlantic ship. This was achieved despite budget cutbacks following the 1974 Defence Review and the shift of emphasis towards NATO. Year by year, the Foreign Office and Ministry of Defence clashed over the future of the vessel. Defence Secretaries called for endurance to be scrapped, arguing that it was costly to maintain and had no real military value. But Foreign Secretaries argued that its military limitations were offset by its political importance, a visible symbol of Britain's presence in the region 
and political will to defend the islanders. In 1978, David Owen won the battle to keep endurance in the region until 1981. The vigour with which Labour's foreign secretaries pursued the matter ensured that the presence of the Royal Navy in the South Atlantic remained visible to Argentina. But this astuteness was only recognised retrospectively. In 1981, the Thatcher government publicly announced its intention to scrap endurance and withdraw the vessel from Falklands waters. This decision would have fatal consequences. It fueled the Argentine belief that Britain had lost interest in the islands and would be unwilling to defend them against attack. After the war, it was invoked by Argentine and British ministers as a major factor in encouraging the Argentine navy to launch the invasion. The second aspect of Labour's watchful defence was the naval deployments put in place during moments of tension. In 1976, following Argentina's attack on a British ship, Jim Callaghan arranged a deployment off the ports of Brazil and Uruguay. A year on, another task force was dispatched, following the discovery of an Argentine presence on southern Thule. But the most striking example came in late 1977. In October, Argentine warships had fired on Soviet and Bulgarian vessels found loitering in Falklands waters. The Navy leader, Admiral Massera, warned there would be similar reprisals for other intrusions into the area, a threat made explicitly to the British naval attaché. Intelligence reports indicated that Argentina was taking a hard line ahead of the December negotiations and warned of a possible invasion if talks did not go well. David Owen decided he could not afford to go into talks without having a nuclear-powered submarine off the Falklands, which could be below the surface but intercede if Argentina took action. Rules of engagement were drawn up, entitling the submarine to fire on Argentine ships which entered Falklands waters and displayed hostile intent. The contingency plan, Operation Journeyman, was designed to respond to limited acts of aggression, but it served another, more important purpose. It was a move to ensure we could act if, against expectations, a surprise invasion had been launched, Owen explained. The deployment was deliberately made covert to avoid derailing the negotiations and in the event of a future deployment being required. As Argentina was unaware of its existence, it had the potential to deter. It was a policy of over-insurance, providing the Foreign Office with the option of revealing its presence if talks broke down, buttressing the negotiating position by making it clear to Argentina that military action would meet with resistance. A task force was in position, ready to intercede in time if matters deteriorated. This was its real significance. In the event, talks went better than expected and the submarine and ships withdrew. But the lessons were never absorbed. As with the issue of endurance, the story of how Britain prepared for conflict in 1977 was only appreciated after the invasion. During March 1982, despite intelligence warnings and being told of the 1977 operation, the Thatcher government declined to arrange a similar deployment for the island's defence. Four weeks later, Argentine forces were allowed to invade the Falklands unimpeded. In conclusion, British policy had been a mixture of success and failure. The Labour government achieved the primary purpose of avoiding a costly conflict. Yet for all the merits of its watchful defence, the sovereignty issue remained untouched. From 1974 to 79, Britain persistently sought to manage the Falklands problem rather than resolve it. Phrases like playing for time and gaining breathing space accompanied every paper addressing the sovereignty question. Amid the chaos in Buenos Aires, islanders had further stiffened against ties with Argentina by the time Margaret Thatcher assumed power. A settlement seemed as far away as ever, and the policy of playing for time was all but exhausted. The task of resolving the dispute, and most importantly, of keeping the peace, were passed to the Thatcher government. This time, both were to prove elusive. Within just three years, Britain would be compelled to defend sovereignty by force of arms. <laughs>